This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. R.J. Julia recently hosted a live event with Hillary and Chelsea Clinton for their new book, Gutsy Women. It was a blast. We had over a thousand people, and I wanted to share that conversation with you. So here it is. I hope you enjoy the talk. It is my distinct honor to ask you to join me in welcoming the mother-daughter dynamo of Hillary Rodham Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. my gosh. You know, as I was walking in, one of the young men here said, I went to my prom here. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, well, before we get started, as you can tell, my daughter is not here. She is on I-95. <laughs> I need I say more? There was an accident, as there seems to be always on I-95 around Stanford. She's hustling as fast as she can. She will join us when she gets here, but I'm thrilled to be back in New Haven. So before we start uh, with the book, talk about the gutsy women, the political situation, the impeachment, a million other things. And I know, I know you don't like to pick favorites, but we're in New Haven. Sally's or Peppy's? Oh, <laughs> you know, really, Roxanne. <laughs> Depends upon the day and my mood. <laughs> okay. So you and Chelsea worked on this book. The first thing I would imagine you started thinking about is just what was your definition of a gutsy woman? That's a great question. You know, this book is really um, a result of a conversation we've been having ever since she was a little girl because I was always um, hopeful that I could find uh, women who were inspirational, motivational, who had done you know, unprecedented things, uh, made a real mark on society. Uh, and I want to share stories with her because when I was a little girl, the only women that I knew who worked outside the home were my teachers and the public librarians, uh, two groups that I adored, by the way. And 
So I, I had to really search. My mother would take me to the library every week, and we'd check out books about all kinds of things, but even fictional characters like Nancy Drew, who you know got me, you know got me thinking that when I was 16, I could you know basically get in a roadster car and drive anywhere. Um, so didn't they ruin Nancy Drew yeah. in the later editions? They did. Well, you know because you run this great uh, you know book. Uh, company and yeah, they did. You know, the they the, ladied her up. They ladied her up, and so when it's annoying. It, well, it was annoying, and I'm just glad that I read her in the original version um, because they started sort of making her um, less adventurous. Um, she didn't wear trousers as often uh, in the later version, but then I heard that she was. Reinvented again. Retrousered. Yes, retrousered. Um, so, what is what is a gutsy woman for us? It is somebody who is courageous and resilient, um, who pursues her passion and her purpose uh, with a sense of mission, and not only on behalf of herself but on behalf of others. Somebody who reaches back and brings others along, who opens doors, who is constantly trying to figure out how to make a positive difference in the world and is fundamentally optimistic regardless of what had happened to her. Because you know, we have women in here who have been uh, really knocked down by life. Um, and they've you know, had tragedies uh, of all kinds. But they kept finding ways to reach out to other people and try to make a difference. And we started with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. Um, we had to cut it down. We wrote over 200 essays. And then our editor said, no, 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 you've got to cut it again. And we had to cut it basically in half. So we have about, we have 103 essays. Uh, How in did here. you and Chelsea resolve the cuts? Did you, I can't imagine you just easily agreed on which were the hundred to cut. No, we went to the mat a few times yeah, for, for, for our choices. <laughs> and we also you know, were, a, were a joint uh, front against our publisher because they wanted to cut people we didn't want to cut. You know, they'd say things like, well, you know, nobody knows about her anymore. That's the whole point. We want people <laughs> to know about her now. Um, so it was not an easy uh, process, but at the end of it, uh, we categorized um, the women in, you know, different groups because we wanted, in some cases, to show the continuity between um, women who came before others and what that meant. If they were scientists or they were uh, healers, doctors and nurses, or if they were activists. Uh, we had a great time doing it, Roxanne. It was really uh, an adventure, and uh, now we get to travel around with each other and uh, oftentimes when we're going to be gone overnight with my three-month-old grandson, Jasper, who comes along. So it's been uh, a terrific experience. There, there were a number of things that occurred to me as I was reading the book, but I've always um, been in awe of Harriet Tubman. And I'd like you to share a little bit of the details of her story. And, the, and then the other question I have in conjunction with that as I read this is, do you think gutsy women are born or made? Because when you think of Harriet Tubman, 
and the kind of extraordinary heroics. You know, as you tell her story, think about that part of it for, for the conversation. Well, I think they're both. Mm -hmm. I think there are some people, and in this case, women and girls, who um, have a, a sense of destiny, uh, confidence, uh, that seems to be inborn. And there are others who had to dig down deep to become resilient and courageous uh, to respond to uh, the circumstances that they confronted. And in the case of Harriet Tubman, we start, we actually start the book with Harriet Tubman uh, because in many ways, uh, people think they know her story. Um, you know, we're still in a bit of a uh, argument uh, about when she will be on our currency because she deserves to be. Um, and like, like so much else, that decision was made in the prior administration, so therefore it is being held up uh, in this one. Um, but Harriet Tubman, born into slavery, uh, as a young woman, uh, she literally couldn't take it anymore. She knew there was something better out there, and so she escaped. And she didn't only escape, she escaped alone, she escaped on her own, she escaped with very little information about where she could find sympathetic people on the Underground Railroad. She took enormous risks, uh, but once she got to freedom, she decided she had to go back and she had to liberate her family and more of the people that she knew. One of the people, she, oh, several yeah. times, more than that. She, one of the people she wanted to bring back was her husband, but he got remarried to somebody else. You can imagine that would be disappointing, you know? <laughs> I've, I've come back to bring you out of slavery. He goes, whoa, I better tell you something. Um, so that wasn't a successful rescue, but she rescued many others. And if that were the only part of her story, that in and of itself would be, you know, extraordinary. But she also was part of the Union armies, um, cadre of spies and scouts. And because she was almost a, a master of disguise, she could disguise herself to, you know, look... Uh, very elderly, um, hardly able to get around, so people would literally pay her no attention. She would be behind enemy lines and gathering information to tell the Union forces uh, what she had discovered. She had remarried. Her husband was also a scout in the Union Army. So in addition to this amazing story of liberation that she uh, symbolizes, she was an instrument of actually bringing about the emancipation and the freedom of the slaves. Uh, and it meant so much to me to learn how she had done that, that when I was a senator from New York and I was studying up on her, well, we have a few New Yorkers here, um, I met with a group of uh, school kids who came to see me and they had done a big report about how she had been a scout, she'd been in the uh, Union Army, and she'd never gotten her pension. And so 
I introduced a bill to give Harriet Tubman her pension, and the uh, response to that was, well, we can't find the records. And I said, oh, come on. I mean, really, uh, this singular personage in our history. They said, well, we could, you know, we, we can find the records for her husband, so we could give him the pension. And I said, oh, come on, right? Anyway, she's, her story and her whole being to me is, is so inspirational. And there's a great legend about her that when she would be taking these slaves, you know, sneaking them off these plantations, she would say, you know, you hear the dogs keep going. If you hear gunshots, keep going. Don't turn back. Keep going until you get to freedom. I mean, it just gives me goosebumps. And she did carry a pistol. And a few times I'm told she had to pull it out and say, keep going. <laughs> We're not turning back. But look what she accomplished. And you know, I want to see her uh, face on uh, our, our currency that we can uh, be proud of. So what are the other qualities among these women? Um, and there's a young woman, a six-year-old, Ruby Bridges Hall, who there is a very powerful picture it's in the book of a six-year-old holding a book bag, and uh, she integrated not the one, not the pictures that we always see, but uh, another school all by herself, all by herself. But the thing that I was reminded of is her family paid a huge price, right? Her Father, I think, lost his 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 job. They they had to move. They, they, there were ramifications that basically destroyed their family's life. And that was another quality that was common. And maybe you could speak to some of the women who not only were gutsy, but they did it in defiance of their own lives and safety. That's exactly right, Roxanne. So Ruby was this little six-year-old child um, who had, with her family, moved to New Orleans uh, to seek a better education. Uh, and when Brown v. Board of Education was decided and the big turmoil began to integrate uh, the public schools, um, Ruby's family uh, was determined that Ruby was going to have a chance to go to a school that had a good reputation to get the best education she could. And it was, as Roxanne recounts, it was so painful because she would, she would be taken to school by federal marshals, and so often the pictures you see, you see this little girl, just so tiny, so, you know, perfectly dressed, determined looking, ready to go to school, surrounded by very big men to protect her. And when it became clear that the school couldn't keep her out, uh, they, they put her into school, but she was in a room all by herself. And 
there are two people that she remembers as being particularly supportive. There was a teacher who volunteered to teach Ruby. And so she was basically there every day teaching Ruby when no one else in the school, student or faculty, would spend any time with her. And there was a psychiatrist um, from Harvard named uh, Robert Coles who decided he was going to uh, try to understand what this kind of courage meant for a six-year-old child. So he began going down to New Orleans, talking to Ruby, talking to her parents and others. And he has this incredible account of what it took for this little girl uh, to carry that big, big weight on her tiny shoulders. Um, you know, she went on to, you know, live a, a very, uh, you know, a very successful life. Um, she's written about uh, that experience. But just thinking about how hard that was. Uh, there are so many women in this book who faced those kinds of tough questions. You know, women who wanted to uh, be athletes and were shunted aside and had to keep working and working. You know, Billie Jean King interviewed us at our, our first event in New York, and she said, look, when I turned 11 and discovered tennis, I knew I wanted to be a tennis player, and I loved the game, and I worked at it, and I won, and I kept winning. But then I realized I wasn't getting the same pay as the men were, and then I came out and I lost every endorsement that I had and I basically had to start all over again. So it, it ranges from you know, the most um, challenging uh, experience for a child like Malala who's in there who wanted to go to school and her father supported her in going to school and the Taliban kept threatening her and she wouldn't stop going to school, and her father wouldn't take her out of school, until finally one day they boarded her school bus and shot her in the head. And thankfully and miraculously, she did, she did survive. But she had to be flown out of Pakistan. I was Secretary of State. We had to help get her out of Pakistan, get her to, uh, in this case, England, where she then embarked on uh, a long, you know, series of medical treatments, but, you know, now she's a student at Oxford. But more importantly than that, she is still trying to fight to get more girls in school. Or, you know, someone's here today that I just want to, um, I want to mention because she's profiled in the book, uh, and that's Nelba Marquez-Green. She's here with her <laughs> husband, Jimmy. <clears throat> And Nelba is part of a group of women in the book that nobody wants to be a member of their numbers. And those are women who themselves or their loved ones have been taken by gun violence. So in Nelba's case, it was her beautiful little girl, Anna Grace, who was murdered at Sandy Hook. In Gabby Gifford's case, a vibrant, incredible member of Congress meeting her constituents in a parking lot of a mall outside Tucson, 
who was shot in the head and nine people there to see her lost their lives. Or Sarah Brady, whose husband James was the press secretary to President Reagan and was shot during the assassination attempt on President Reagan and paralyzed. Or Lucy McBath, whose son Jordan was murdered by a man in the car next to him because the man yelled that the music was too loud. And for each one of them, faced with an unspeakable tragedy, they all became you know, advocates, advocates for treating each other better, being kinder, advocates for intervening in ways to help families that suffer from these terrible events, advocates for sensible gun control. They did not plan to be profiled in this book for what they have experienced. But to go back to your point, Roxanne, each one of them means a great deal to Chelsea and me because they turned unimaginable grief into a sense of determination in their own lives as they dealt with it. But beyond that, for the rest of us, and we have a new generation of young people who've been affected by gun violence who we profile as well, like Emma Gonzalez from uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and others who themselves have been affected by this scourge. And I want to particularly call out your two senators because you've got two of the best senators to stand up and fight back against this. So a couple of lighter things to bring up from the book. One person I had never heard of was Patsy Mink, who you should read that part of the book, and she became a key um, proponent and the person responsible for Title IX and, you know, the impact of Title IX in the years since are unmanageable. But it reminded me of something else, which seems not that powerful, but I was amused, and that is we're similar ages, and we both played half-court basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. Well, we profile Patsy Mink and Edith Green and Bernice Sandler, who were the three driving forces behind legislation called Title IX. Title IX was the federal legislation that required uh, that in both academics and athletics, schools had to be uh, supporting women in academics and women in athletics. And so before Title IX, which was in the uh, early 1970s happened, there weren't very many uh, high school sport opportunities for girls. Uh, in fact, one of our favorite statistics in the book is that before Title IX, there were about 700 girls across the nation who were playing soccer. Last year, there were 390,000. And part of that was because the Title IX required that high schools, you know, if they were going to have a 
a girl, a boys soccer team, they were gonna have to have a girls soccer team. But what Roxanne is talking about is back in the dark ages when we were uh, in high school. Uh, How many of you played half court basketball? Oh my goodness. Oh, not enough. <laughs> Well, we were told that girls could not run the full court. It would be bad for our hearts. So you had to turn around. You would like get to the, and we were wearing those one piece little blue, they had snap buttons. Yeah. I don't think they let us play if you had your period or something that may, you may They had a million allowed. excuses why we couldn't play. Um, and, and at least the way I played half-court basketball, you had three people on each side, right. three on offense, three on defense, and you could not cross the center line. And in our version, you couldn't dribble more than three times. Yeah, we couldn't either. So Title IX changed I thought that, that was still a rule. No, no, that's, <laughs> no, 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 not, not anywhere that I know of. Uh, anyway, one of the... Uh, people in the book that I think resonated with me today and had a powerful impact on me then that you profile in the book is Barbara Jordan. And Barbara Jordan has resonance today. You have a very poignant piece of her uh, statement, but share with us and we probably should mention in 1974, you were an aide to the Judiciary Committee or to the Judiciary Committee during Nixon's impeachment, and Barbara Jordan pay, played a significant role. So remind us or inform us about Barbara Jordan and who she was. Absolutely, yes. You know, um you know, some people say you can't make my life up, and this is one more example of that. Uh, so I graduated from Yale Law School in uh, 1973, and in uh, late 73, I was asked, along with four of my uh, Yale Law School classmates who had graduated, uh, if we wanted to work on what was being called the impeachment inquiry staff. And it was run by uh, some extraordinary lawyers, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and the point was to gather evidence to determine whether or not to submit articles of impeachment uh, regarding uh, Richard Nixon. So I went to work uh, in uh, January of 1974, and you know we we were. Uh, working 18 hours a day, uh, and it was one of the most extraordinary experiences for obviously many reasons, but but in large measure because it was so nonpartisan, it was so professional. And when we got the tapes that Nixon had initially refused to turn over, but he was ordered finally by the courts to do so, uh, it was filled with incriminating information, and it's it helped to make the decision to um, offer articles of impeachment. So on the committee was this brand new young member of Congress from Houston uh, by the name of Barbara Jordan. She had been the first African-American woman in the South elected to uh, a state's Senate, first elected to the Congress. So she just had shown up, but boy, nobody could mistake how influential she became very quickly. And if, if you 
want to see it for yourself, you should um, go to YouTube and look at her speech supporting the articles of impeachment against Nixon because it is so powerful, so persuasive, compelling, um, as she talks about the Constitution and how important it is to honor the Constitution. Even though she starts out by saying, uh, when it was first written, she was not included. And she said for the longest time, she just thought Alexander Hamilton and George Washington had overlooked her. Um, but she said, as we've gone forward, we have worked to improve it, to make it inclusive, and it must mean what it says. And impeachment was put in by the founders in order to hold accountable office holders, including the president, for abuse of power. And I, I watched that speech with tears running down my face because it was incredibly powerful and persuasive. And by the time the committee voted, Republicans voted for at least one of the articles uh, of impeachment. And once that happened, that the House committee, not the whole House even, but the House committee had heard this evidence and voted in favor of impeachment, Republicans along with the Democrats, uh, Republican senators went to the White House and told Nixon it was time to resign. So we keep hoping that there will be, uh, you know, Republicans who, you know, put country uh, ahead of party or their own personal uh, interests. Are you optimistic? You know, I will tell you that uh, the, the evidence that we know, that which is reported um, in the press, uh, is deeply uh, disturbing because having been Secretary of State, to see what we're now learning about this president, uh, in effect putting his own personal and political interests ahead of our national security uh, should bother any American. I don't care what political party you're affiliated with. And if, if, you, if you have followed, there are increasing numbers of Republican House members who are saying they're not going to run for reelection. And I and I think there has been um, a, one or maybe two now who have said that he believes that this investigation uh, is merited. So it could very well end up the way it did uh, with Richard Nixon when it wasn't until the very end that the public strongly supported uh, holding the president accountable. And the public is much further ahead today than they were in 1974. So it's possible that Republican House members will vote for one or more articles of impeachment based on the evidence. You know, and I can't stress that enough because having been in this process, I mean, the lawyers I worked under were adamant. Nobody jumped to conclusions. You follow the facts. And if the facts lead you to conclude that the president did not do anything wrong, did not violate laws or the meaning of uh, the impeachment clause, that's what it should be. But if on the other hand, 
you find evidence that he did. And remember, you know, the, the articles of impeachment against Richard Nixon were for abuse of power, obstruction of justice, and contempt of Congress. And I think that there is certainly reason to believe that evidence is being gathered on all three of those uh, kinds of uh, charges. Are you at all concerned or even alarmed by the counter investigation that William Barr um, appointed John Durham to do? So for those who might not be as obsessed with the news as I am, by, by 6 a.m. I'm already having a hissy fit and Kevin's asking me, is it the Defense Department today that's annoying me or Trump again? Um, but uh, William Barr, our Attorney General, has appointed John Durham, who's a Connecticut um, person, and has been involved in independent investigations before, has been appointed to investigate the investigation, namely, the assertion that there was something criminal involved in the beginning of the Russian investigation that enveloped the Trump administration or Trump himself. Are you concerned about that? I am very concerned. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm concerned in general about what's happening at the Justice Department and the uh, behavior of the attorney general who seems to think he's Trump's defense attorney, not the you know, lead lawyer to enforce the laws of the United States of America. And I, you know, I don't know any more either than what I, what I read and, and hear in the press, but um, it, it is, look, it, it's, it's troubling at the very least that this administration has been so disdainful of our intelligence services, of our law enforcement, particularly the FBI, of our military, um, and have been slowly um, eroding uh, the rule of law and the institutions that uphold it. So I am very concerned. And this idea that we're going, that the Justice Department is going to, in effect, investigate the FBI and the CIA it just has to be delighting Vladimir Putin. I mean, think about it. He has succeeded far beyond his wildest dreams in sowing, you know, all kinds of distrust and divisiveness uh, in our country, in our government. Uh, and that's the best and, and most foolproof way of undermining the United States, our leadership and our credibility. I mean, when Nancy Pelosi stood up in the cabinet room, and we all remember the picture of her standing up in the cabinet room, and saying to Trump, with you, all roads lead to Russia, she is not someone given to hyperbole. She's very careful, as we have seen with her leadership. But think about it. Who benefits from all of these decisions that are being made? If, if what the goal of this Barr investigation is, 
and certainly it's what Trump hopes the outcome will be, because he has said it, is that somehow Ukraine was interfering with our election, not Russia. I mean, Ukraine is not exactly known as one of the great cyber attack <laughs> machines. China, maybe, Iran, maybe, Russia for sure. And that somehow, you know, the Russians did not interfere despite all the evidence to the contrary. What this is really about, when you strip it all down, is that Donald Trump knows he's an illegitimate president and he wants to overturn history. Welcome. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. We've well, just while, been talking about impeachment. Well, and I, well, and I heard that you both played half-court basketball. <laughs> and I missed that reminiscence. So hopefully we can have a reprisal of that later. Um, and I'm just so excited and grateful to be here. And I'm just so sorry. Oh gosh, thank you. And I just am so sorry I'm late. I hate being late, but there was a terrible accident. And then I feel so badly that I'm so annoyed that I'm late when there's a terrible accident. Cause then of course I just feel like, oh my gosh, I hope everyone's okay. And like, why am I so annoyed about being so late? Um, so that's my update. <laughs> and apparently we're talking about impeachment and why ever would we be doing that? So. Okay, so we're going to switch gears because you're here. And this is, and this feels to me like the right question. Jill wrote this question. This is for you, Madam Secretary. What did you do to raise such an intelligent daughter? Well, look, I, um, I, I really think that, um, you know, anybody who's ever been a parent uh, no, is you do your very, very, very best, and then you just pray a lot and hope for it all <laughs> to turn out. Um, partly, um, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, Bill and I uh, believe that Chelsea has the best of both of us, um, and we were so excited uh, when she was born and just spent every amount of time and energy we could in trying to not only uh, give her the love and attention and the guidance and the discipline that every child needs, but also uh, to be very open and um, receptive to her interests and what was on her mind. Uh, and she had a mind of her own. Uh, in fact, there's a story in the book that I particularly love uh, because, well, I'll let you tell it, Chelsea, but this shows, I mean, we, we, this was what we were dealing with when she was five years old, just so you know that it was a little bit of an adventure for us about how we, you know, made sure that uh, she had the support uh, to pursue the interests that she had. Well, I do, I give my parents a lot of credit, and especially my mom. Um, and I own all of my faults, whatever faults are my own, but a lot of the good things, I definitely want to give credit to my mom. Um, and 
one of the things that she really did for me purposefully was introduce me to so many of the women that we write about in this book. I remember growing up just hearing the stories of Barbara Jordan, whom I know she spoke about already, and Shirley Chisholm, and I have this just vivid memory of her taking me to see Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 when she came to Arkansas. And, um, you know, also really helping me kind of uh, connect to people that she'd admired who were especially important to me, like Maria Tallchief, because I loved ballet as a little girl. Um, and just kind of ensuring that I understood the importance and the value of persistence. Um, she also expected me, and so did my dad, to um, kind of be a citizen, even as a little kid. I mean, the first thing I learned how to read was the newspaper, and I have these vivid memories of all of us reading the newspaper, like over breakfast every morning. And one day when I was five, I read the newspaper that President Reagan uh, was going on a state visit to what was then West Germany. And he was planning on visiting uh, Bitburg, which was the national cemetery. And this was a controversial decision because there were Nazis, including uh, members of the SS leadership, uh, buried uh, at Bitburg. And I didn't think an American president should go and pay his respects on behalf of our country uh, to a place where Nazis were buried. And so um, this got me very angry. And uh, my and mother- how old? I was five. Five. And, and my, mother, um, my mother said, well, then you should write the White House. And I said, yes. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote President Reagan and the letter went something like this. Um, Dear Mr. President, I have seen the sound of music. <laughs> I know the Nazis are not very nice people. Please don't go to their cemetery. Sincerely, Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> and I included, this was probably even more significant to me, candidly, as a five-year-old than even writing the letter, I included two sheets of my favorite rainbow and heart stickers, <laughs> like as a gesture of goodwill. Um, and I never got a reply. And I, I was really bummed out about that. I was more bummed out that President Reagan still went to the cemetery. And kind of speaking about parenting, he tried to justify it by saying he was only there for eight minutes. And I kept thinking like, if I did something bad, I couldn't say to my mom, like it was only eight minutes. <laughs> like that would not fly. Actually, that's a good line. <laughs> yeah, it was like only eight minutes. Like I only did this bad thing for eight minutes. I was only like disrespectful and anti-Semitic and terrible for eight minutes. No. So um, I was really disappointed um, by the whole experience. Like he didn't listen to me. He didn't write me a thank you note for the rainbow and heart stickers. <laughs> He didn't send you stickers. I didn't get any stickers, no. But there is, a, I think, a good kind of outcome in some ways of all of this in that after my dad won in 1992 and my parents asked me, like, what do you hope out of this kind of adventure that our family's about to take as we move to Washington? And I said, I want every child to get a response if they write my dad or my mom. Like, or the White House. And so my mom set up the Children's Correspondence Unit in the White House, which tracked like every kid's letter. And um, 
Mrs. Bush continued it. Mrs. Obama continued it. I have no idea if it's continued now. Um, but, well, I, but I hope so. Does somebody have a five-year-old that can write so. the White House and report it? Um, because it really... Why not? It really has meant a lot to me, actually, now that I have met so many people who've come up and said, like, oh, Chelsea, like, I wrote you kids? and I got a response. Or I wrote, yes, afterwards, I, I will buy the collected works and send it to the president because I just thought maybe he should read her on lynching, but I couldn't get, I couldn't get it delivered from Amazon. So I want to, I want to ask um, each of you a question um, about the gutsiest decision that you think either of you have made over your lifetime. Well, I think um, I think my mom's gutsiest decision has been to run for president, um, particularly the second time. And I think it took a lot of guts for her to stand up to Donald Trump and all that she knew he would do um, during the election. And you know, I've talked about this more recently, kind of for my own life. Um, but I think the first time I really recognized I had to be gutsy, even though it felt kind of both easy and hard simultaneously, was when my dad um, ran for president. I was 11 years old when he announced. And while I had already encountered a fair bit of um, kind of meanness and bullying in Arkansas, it was nothing compared to kind of what happened when my dad ran for office. And I was just so surprised by how many adults, and particularly like older white men, but not exclusively older white men, but particularly older white men, like said awful things about me as a kid. And so kind of the most common refrain that I heard, and I, I picked these two examples because like in theory, they're like opposite ends of the political spectrum. Um, like Rush Limbaugh and Saturday Night Live both made like quote jokes about my appearance saying, you know, like, oh, like if Bill Clinton wins, like they'll take their cat socks, happy national cat day, everybody. They'll take their cat socks to the White House and their dog, Chelsea. And I think thankfully I knew that that was crazy. Like why were adults being so mean to a kid? Like what had gone wrong in their lives? Like that they thought that that was ever okay. But it wasn't always easy. Like most days it was like, oh, like this is crazy and I'm not gonna let this bother me. But some days it was just hard. And so I don't think I quite understood until I got older that it did take guts every day to just get up and be like, I'm gonna go to school and I'm gonna leave my life. And like, I have a right to be an 11 year old just like every 11 year old has a right to be an 11 year old. It you know, Chelsea, the the question that brings um, to mind, too, one of the articles that I had read in preparing for our conversation did inform me about the amount of vitriol that, you know, I had kind of known it then, but I don't think I realized the extent of it and some of that what uh, you're explaining. And... It made me think about the what you both think about going high or low. And there were a couple of things that reminded me of it, because I started looking at Twitter accounts, which I don't 
normally do. So there were a couple of things that have happened over the last couple of weeks. One is at the Nats game, Trump was out of the bubble and they did lock him up. And, and there, you know, I've read both points of view, like don't use his garbage and get down in the mud. And, and, and I'm not even singularly talking about him. I'm talking about the general refrain. What are each of your thoughts on where we keep the civility despite the noise and ugliness, or do you have to match that in order to have a conversation? I think, I mean, there are probably as many answers to this question as there are people in the room right. tonight. And I, and I do mean this really sincerely. I think we each have to kind of find whatever feels right to us. I, um, I certainly think, you know, in, in total candor, if I were, um, you know, at the Nats game, you know, I certainly would have felt compelled to ensure that he knew how I felt about him. <laughs> and I have pretty strong feelings about him. But I, I would not have joined the lock him up chant mm -hmm. because I think in this moment when we are fighting for the integrity of our constitution and our democracy, um, we can't lose sight of why it's important that we come out on the other side of this moment of horror with the integrity of our constitution and the rule of law intact. So if, um, if people had been chanting about like locking kids up in cages and like how horrible that is, like I would have been right there. If people were like chanting about his coddling white nationalism and his ongoing like anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, like I would have been right there. If they were chanting about his ongoing misogyny, I would have been right there. If they were chanting about the fact that he lies like multiple times every day, like I would have been right there. Like, so there are all sorts of things that people could have been chanting about that I would have um, quite uh, vehemently joined. Um, and the booze, like I definitely could have gotten on board with. <laughs> um, but I, I don't feel comfortable with kind of, let's just get rid of all, all due process. But I do think absolutely it's important that um, the president knows how the majority of our country feels about him. And I think it's important that the world knows how the majority of Americans feel about him. Yeah. Especially that. You know, I, I think this is a very complicated, real question. Um, and I agree with uh, what Chelsea said about how we all have to, you know, dig deep and figure out the best way for us to uh, express ourselves and to stand up against uh, behaviors and uh, attacks on our um, on our country that come from within. I think that's clearly uh, what we're called to do. It's hard to know where the bottom is. You know, keep thinking we've seen it. And I will tell you, I will tell you that. And I've told every candidate who I've had a chance to talk to, has come to see me or called me, I said, you could run the best campaign, you could get the nomination, 
but we're living in a world where up is down and down is up, where truth is devalued, uh, where there's tens of millions of dollars behind falsehoods, where the biggest platform of information in the world, Facebook, refuses to take false political ads off. And so how do people even know what to believe? How do you fight back when you can't quite figure out you know, what the odds are? And, and for me, when we say, do we go high, do we go low, under normal circumstances, we go high and we try to set an example. But you're doing it at the same time that millions and millions of pieces of information to tear other people down is being directly delivered to you online. So this is, I mean, I worry about this a lot, and I am appalled with the Facebook decision to permit false uh, advertising. And I think it's an abdication of their responsibility. Um, but it leaves us as citizens, you know, confused and bewildered. Like, what am I supposed to believe? You know, I didn't, at, uh, during the 2016 campaign, I was not aware of as many of the false attacks on me. And it was only after the fact and people doing research to try to figure out what happened uh, that a lot of this came out. But it was so powerfully presented repetitively over and over again. I don't know what we do if we have um, information sources like Facebook that won't help us in this fight. I don't know how the rest of us can make sense of it. So try to go high whenever you can, but fight as hard as you can to get the truth out there, right? Well, and I would say I do think, though, it's important um, to kind of separate out how we, how we each feel about what the best and right response is to the president and his enablers and everyone who is complicit in kind of all that he is uh, uh, both kind of wrecking and unleashing at this moment. And, and then how we still treat one another. Because one of the real, I think, painful um, kind of derivatives of, of the president and kind of what he's unleashed is the rise in bullying that we're seeing in schools. Right? So there are unprecedented levels of bullying being reported at the elementary school level, the middle school level, the high school level. Um, and so I do think it's particularly important that we help kids feel the confidence uh, to stand up for themselves and to stand up for one another, but also to know when to ask a trusted adult for help. You know, when it actually is strong to reach out and ask for help, whether that's from a parent, a grandparent, or a teacher, um, and yet ensure that our kids who are really angry about what's happening in this moment, you know, feel feel righteous in that anger toward the president and others, but don't kind of take that anger kind of toward, toward their classmates. So I do think we have to think about kind of this differently, even though unfortunately, you know, from the president's perspective, he thinks about everyone outside of probably his own kids kind of with one broad brush. 
And you know, Chelsea, part of that is there was a there was a poem in the New York Times Magazine uh, the other day, and it was called Small Kindnesses. And I actually am putting it in the year-end letter we send out um, to customers. And what it reminded me of, that we still live in our own world, and we still can say thank you to the bagger at the stop and shop or move, move our feet Oh, you know, our legs over when someone's trying to get um, through an aisle because I think we almost have to remember that there's this and that. And what I worry about is that what we're watching is an unleashing of misogyny and racism where people maybe had it, but it was in check, and then over time maybe it, it, it even disappeared so that that's the place where we can stay high. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence uh, to support what you just said, that, you know, people um, are feeling empowered, um, validated in expressing uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, bias and uh, prejudice, uh, insulting people, attacking uh, them for who they are. Uh, and so, yes... I, this this has to be a, this has to be approached both from the top down and particularly from the bottom up. How do we model appropriate behavior for our children and for others? And you know, I, it just drives me crazy when I read an interview with somebody or see somebody being uh, interviewed on TV, and they say, you know, one of the things that I love about the president is that you know I, I'm just sick of being politically correct. And I'm thinking to myself, no, you're sick of being polite and civil and kind and appropriate in your behavior. That's what you're sick of. And we, we have a huge repair job to do once we finally get our country back and we get a sense of where we are going to head together because, like it or not, we are going to share this country. And we're going to have to figure out how we make it better for everybody. Uh, and so part of the challenge of this time, and I love the way, I mean, Chelsea, if you've ever gone on her Twitter account, is superb at deflecting uh, the kind of hatred and nastiness that unfortunately Twitter uh, is all too well known for in being able to, you know, when somebody says terrible things about her or, you know, assaults a group of people verbally for who they are, you know, she will respond, she will push back, and then she'll say, have a nice day. And it just really is a good model about how to try to deal with this. Because remember now, so much of our communication with one another takes place online. And people will say things online they would never say in person. And so we have to battle this both in our personal relationships and encountering, as you say, you know, the, the, just the everyday politeness that we should be exercising, but we also have to figure out a better way of dealing with it online. So speaking of the future of our country, uh, there was a rumor, Chelsea, that you might run to replace Nita Lowy's seat when she retires uh, next year. You squash those rumors pretty quickly. But I'm curious, 
if watching your parents' political lives makes you want to ultimately get involved in politics or has alerted you to do what you want to do outside that job description? Well, their lives have really shown me both that who runs for and who holds political office really matters, um, and also that you can make a big difference outside of office. Um, you know, if I think about my mom's life, you know, some of my earliest memories of her talking to me about her work was when she was the chair of the Legal Services Corporation um, and all of her legal aid work. And so kind of my first understanding of kind of her as an activist very much wasn't as a politician. It was her as a advocate, kind of in every sense. Um, that's also though when I kind of realized that my dad was the governor of Arkansas. Um, and so I understood that kind of, it also really mattered who was uh, holding political office and you know, particularly as a kid, like I didn't know why he couldn't improve what I was eating for lunch every day, like at you know, Forest Park Elementary School. Um, and, and I say that because I, I grew up, you know, Roxanne, with just these kind of very different, but for me, really compelling and inspiring models. And then my mom ran for office and my dad kind of left office and first kind of turned his big brain and heart to trying to tackle the HIV AIDS crisis around the world and then to lots of other challenges. So I just have seen um, that uh, there are so many ways to serve. But I think as we kind of have already discussed this evening, like it does really matter who runs for and holds political office at every level. Um, and I've been asked some variation of like, will you run for something for as long as I can remember? I mean, I have this memory of being in Magnolia, Arkansas, and my dad was running for re-election as governor. And I was like waving an American flag and like handing out stickers, because that's what you can do when you're three or four. Um, and this woman saying to me, like, Chelsea, do you think you're going to be governor of Arkansas one day? And me saying something like, you know, ma'am, I'm three. <laughs> um, but I say that because... Even then you knew. <laughs> well, no, I knew that I was three. I don't think I knew much else. Um, but I, I share that because I actually think, um, while kind of I chuckle about it now, I think, yes, there was kind of the pressure of expectation, but there also was the gift of expectation of participation that it was at least something I was going to think about. And so I really hope that all of us are asking ourselves and asking each other, but particularly asking young people in our lives, like, do you think you may want to run for city council one day or to be the governor of Connecticut or to run for Congress? And then to really help young people understand how there are different possibilities in different jobs. Because one of the things I've also found, um, and I found this kind of in the, in the campaign in 2016, but really kind of in the time since, and I think it's partly because Trump consumes so much oxygen and is such a masterful marketer at making everything about himself, um, is that when I talk to young people to now, now, they think like all that really matters is what's happening in Washington. And yet, so much of actually what matters happens outside of Washington. Like if, if you really care about criminal justice reform, like that's really at the state and local level. And so I just think, you know, it's something we all should be asking ourselves. For me right now, the answer clearly is no. But I think the answer 
always should be, even if it's no now for anyone, it should be at least maybe, whether it's the school board or the city council or the state legislature, the governor, house, like Congress or the White House. You know, the, the line that I think of a lot these days, and I don't know whether I made it up or I read it somewhere, so this could be um, plagiarism. Uh, and if it is, forgive me, whoever said it. But the, the, the phrase I think of a lot these days is the way we live is the world we get. And if we stand by, then we're complicit by standing by. And I, and I appreciate you, Chelsea, reminding all of us, whether you're a 16-year-old girl or a 70-something, year old woman, there's always something that each of us can and I think must do. Well, yeah, I mean, I think about, I mean, there are kind of two quotes that I think about frequently. You know, one is my Angelou, when people show you who they are the first time, believe them. Um, and, and the other is Eli Wiesel, like neutrality always helps the oppressor. Mm. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Um, one thing that um, I was amused by in reading about, we, we haven't talked that much about how you wrote the book together, but the story that I've heard you both tell that I think is worth talking about is how your mom, Chelsea, used the best of technology to co-write this yeah. book with you. I was really impressed with the with that whole process of sophistication. The blue, the blue ballpoint so pen, really, just, like the height just of Just share technology. that with us. Pretty um, impressive, yeah, no, Madam I, Secretary. I never, I never get tired of talking about this. I'm sure my children are never gonna get tired of talking about ways they can tease me too. Um, so I knew my mom wrote longhand. Like I did know that. So I have to take responsibility. You have to for explain that. what longhand is because that is true. So like pen, pen to paper, and like particularly like yellow and white legal pads. And I knew that because I had seen her work on her previous books. I just hadn't really then thought about what that would mean for our work together. <laughs> and I also didn't know that she edited still like pen to paper. So I first became aware of our different writing styles when like I sent her like the first few essays I'd written like carefully labeled with like dates and the woman's name and like what version they were for my own tracking and like they were each their own individual attachments like to the email and I got back like you know pictures which now she's going to correct me and say it was like a scanning app but it was it's like a picture that then gets turned into like a scan so it's still a picture like a picture of each written page it would be like rosa parks like picture of page one like rosa parks like picture of page two like and what and was it the did, problem she did eventually figure out <laughs> right? how to at least like put them into more like coherent attachments because initially i literally got like rosa parks page one attachment rosa parks page two attachment Okay, so then I, I just was like, all right, I can, I can work with this. I can work with this. But then when we got to the point where we were really working off of, like, one manuscript, I would um, 
put in my track changes in my comment boxes, which would frequently be like, mom, like I have a question about this or our editor kept pushing us. Like we had to, oh, I don't know, cut like 32 words out of this essay. Like here are the 32 words I think we should cut out. Like, what do you think? And I would highlight those or underline them. Like I had, I had a whole system that I thought was like really both like coded well for the different tools I was using. And of course it was also color coded. Okay. So then my mother, <laughs> would send back, again, like, pictures of, like, she would have, like, written on the page, like, you know, yes, I agree with this, or no, I don't agree with this edit, and, like, here, she would, like, draw a circle around a sentence and, like, put an arrow and move it up and be like, you know, I really think this makes more sense up here. I mean, I just, so then I would have to type all that in, right, so I could keep track of it, and then I would have to, like, color code it for my mom. It worked, but it did take a while for us to figure it out. Uh, so okay, wait a minute. <laughs> she says this everywhere. Well, no, I mean, okay. Everywhere. Okay. She's going to tell you who else writes longhand, which somehow okay. is impressive that she's in good company, but doesn't actually have made it any easier to have been her collaborator. So... Um, Last, uh, last Friday, um, I had the great honor and privilege of speaking at uh, Elijah Cummings' homegoing, his uh, um, service. And before it started, I was, you know, back uh, in a little holding room uh, with my husband and with, uh, uh, you know, Barack Obama. So I said, I said to uh, former President Obama, I said, so how's your book going? He goes, oh, you know, it's really hard. It's just hard. I said, I know, I know, it's really hard. And I said, you know, I just wanted to confirm that <laughs> you write your books in longhand. Oh, he goes, yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't write. Uh, I said, I, you know, I, I try to use, you know, a computer and it's just, it's just so sterile and glib, and I, I got to get back holding that pen and putting it on the paper. I said, that's all I wanted to know. Chelsea. <laughs> I'm outnumbered. I'm outnumbered. Okay, so we have uh, just a few minutes left. Uh, I know. I know. We've had such a nice time together, haven't we? Yeah. So I have two last questions. One is, all the women featured in the book share a fierce optimism that their work and their lives will make a difference in the world. You've each had challenges, threats, um, difficult circumstances. What do each of you do to sustain optimism? That's a great question um, because optimism doesn't mean that you are ignoring uh, what's going on around you, how hard it can be. There's nothing wrong with delusional optimism. Well, <laughs> that, that, that's occasionally called for, but in general, um, you have to be um, confident enough and uh, committed enough to get through 
whatever life throws at you, because it throws something at all of us. I mean, everybody has setbacks and disappointments and losses, everybody. And there's a lot of difficulty in sometimes pulling yourself together and, and moving uh, forward. Um, so for me, I have the really great uh, gift of uh, support from family, wonderful friends. Um, I read deeply. I rely on my faith, which has been uh, a real stalwart support for me over uh, a lot of years. Um, and it's just a, a question of how to come to grips with getting up and moving forward. Keep going like Harriet Tubman. You just keep going. Uh, if you want to get to freedom, and freedom not just from slavery as an institution, but from being held back and enslaved by your fears and your anxieties and your disappointments and your resentments and everything else that eat away at every person. And how you deal with that uh, will, in large measure, uh, be decided by the level of hopefulness and optimism that you can uh, muster. Uh, so there's no magic formula. Uh, it was fascinating in writing about uh, all of these women, um, how some got through difficult times, uh, and how they summoned energy uh, and fierceness. I love that, that phrase, fierce optimism. Uh, we write about women who were tortured and exiled. We write about women who uh, were confronted by, uh, you know, militias with automatic weapons in their face. We write about women who were beaten and raped and left to die on the side of the road. We write about women who, you know, suffered just more than I can even imagine, uh, but who kept going. And so when each of us has cause to be down, to be pessimistic, to be disappointed, we really hope that this book serves as a reminder that you can, you can come up with the, the stuff to enable yourself to move forward. Uh, and that, to me, is, is really the purpose of why we wrote this book, because we know that we're living in a time that can be so discouraging, so disappointing, so confusing. Uh, and part of the way that I keep going is just understanding deeply that people with whom I fundamentally disagree about nearly everything are counting on us being disappointed and disoriented and distracted in ways that enable them to continue to consolidate power, to make decisions that you know, are good for them ideologically or in accordance with their you know, religious beliefs or put money in their pockets. And so you can't allow that to happen. And yet we all need to be you know, given that boost uh, every so often to keep going. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, and then my last question is for you. Um, so 
Another thing we have in common besides half-court basketball. Um, and loving books. And loving, loving books, books and having been involved with Child Care Action Campaign in the 80s together um, is my idol and the woman at the top of your list in here is Eleanor Roosevelt. And I've read her books, I've read the books about her, but as I was thinking about you, because I know you said in the book that when you were trying to think of a decision, you would try to channel her. So if I gave you the opportunity to like go in the next room and have a cup of tea with her, what would you ask her? Oh, what a great question. Um, Wow, so much. You know, part of the reason that I am such an admirer of Eleanor Roosevelt is because she too had a really difficult uh, childhood, like my own mother did. And so I related to this, you know, this woman who came from American aristocracy, whose uncle was Teddy Roosevelt, who married Franklin Roosevelt but who was essentially abandoned by her mother who thought she was so ugly. And her father, whom she loved desperately, drank himself to death, so she was orphaned before she was 10. And what does it take to try to keep going in the face of those setbacks, those tragedies? And how she was someone who never stopped trying to learn about people around her. When I was first lady, I would go to places uh, here in our country, around the world, and I cannot tell you how many times I was met by somebody who said, oh, you're the second first lady who's visited us. Eleanor Roosevelt was here. And it used to just make me so delighted because of course she was. And so many other places I never got to. And she was indefatigable. She traveled to the Pacific War Theater because her husband wanted her to go out and you know, talk to the soldiers and the sailors and the airmen and figure out what was happening there. And I mean, I just found her life incredibly rich. And she had a way about her of trying to bring out the best in people. So, when her husband died and when President Truman became president, uh, he appointed her to work on the UN. And part of her job in trying to help establish the United Nations was to be the principal driver of the United uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And you should go back and read that. We could never get that passed today. I mean, the Soviet Union abstained. They didn't vote against it, because it had to be by consensus. Everyone had to be for it. And she, she was able to get them to abstain. But that document, which was in reaction to the horrors of the 20th century, particularly World War II, was such a clarion call for us to be respectful of one another. And to Chelsea's point, to you know, look for the best in people. So I, I do think about her. So if I was in there having tea, I would just say, just, just talk about anything you want to talk about. 
because I'm ready to listen for as long as you're willing uh, to talk. And from what I hear about her and what I've read about her and people that I know who knew tea. her, we'd have a long, long tea. tea. <laughs> but I think she would be, because she was worried in some of her last writings that, uh, you know, America never lose uh, what made us unique. You know, that yes, we're, did we have faults? Did we stumble? Of course we did, we're human beings. But we kept moving forward uh, toward that more perfect union. And I think she would be, uh, if she were with us today, she would be, you know, doing interviews and writing articles. Maybe she'd be on Twitter, uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, standing up for American values and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Well, and I just want to add one quick thing, because there's something that um, Eleanor Roosevelt did that I don't think she's as well known for, which is that she wrote children's books, including a book explaining, like, what are human rights? And I say that because I'm often asked, like, why do you write children's books? And I say because children's books are often kind of the first um, way we say to kids, like, here's what's possible or here's what's not. Here's where you are visible, or here's where you're not. And Eleanor Roosevelt understood profoundly that if the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was ever going to be more than just a document, it had to be embedded in kind of the growing awareness and consciousness and kind of humanity of kids. And so since we're kind of here with a bookstore, I just wanted to say how grateful I am as someone who also believes that kind of children's books are really important that Eleanor did too. So in closing, um, I have always been struck by this quote and I'm, it, this quote reminds me so much, Madam Secretary, of what you've done. So Richard Patterson wrote a book called Eclipse, and it's based on the case of the Nigerian writer and activist, uh, Ken Sarowiwa, uh, who was sadly executed in 1995. And in an interview uh, with his son, uh, who accepted the Nobel Prize on behalf of his father, he was asked about sacrifices his family made because of his father's commitment. And the son said, all of us have a choice to make our children safe in the world or to make the world safe for our children. And that is what you've done. So... I would, I would like to thank you uh, for that. You have both brilliantly reminded us of what each of us, each woman, each girl, is capable of. Also, that the world will be better if there are more gutsy women. And we are indebted to both of you for that and a mountain more. So thank you 
Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton. Thank, Thank you, you all. Everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.